Tonight's scripture reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 25 and 26. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. This is the word of the Lord. Some of the most moving uh, moments of, of my life have been at funerals, when a lifelong companion will stand up uh, next to the casket of, uh, of a dear friend and then share what the friend has meant to them. Um, some of those moments are the most tender that I ever have in my life. Some of the saddest moments of my life have also been at funerals, where it's obvious that they couldn't find anybody to say anything uh, about the deceased. When Jonathan, David's lifelong covenant friend, sleeps for the last time on the slopes of Mount Geboa, he is overcome with grief, and he gives a kind of eulogy, a lament over his brother. He says that he's loved him with a great, great love. So one of the things we've been exploring these past two weeks is this idea of a covenant friendship. And we've been asking, you know, how's that going to play out for you at at your funeral? Um, What's going to happen? Will there be somewhere there to say something? Normally what you do in a funeral is part of it. The minister meets with the family and you get together and you start to plan the service. And it can be either this this rich, rich moment of trying to figure out how on earth are we going to fit into this service all the people that want to speak about this person and the richness of their life with them, or it can be this terrible moment where we realize no one has anything to say. What will it be for you and I? Well, we came up with a little definition of covenant friendship from the beginning of the Jonathan and David story. Let me read the first few verses, and maybe you can put that up, Ruth. As soon as he'd finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And so we've kind of been developing a working definition of this, and we've said a covenant friendship is a special kind of friendship in which two friends commit to love one another for life. With souls knit together, they keep this commitment regardless of where life takes them. And last week we ended our time together with uh, two questions. Um, Do I have the capacity for this kind of friendship? And then the second question, what soul tears hinder me from relating this way? What, what keeps me from having lifelong committed friendships? And uh, I just took a little time today to, to sketch out a list. You could make up your own uh, of a few things that keep us from relating well. Uh, fear of abandonment, we'll do that. Fear of revealing my true self. 
Fear of commitment or a misunderstanding of freedom. The fear of intimacy. Dependency issues. Father wounds, and by that I mean unresolved issues with your father that uh, squish out into your relationship with men. Mother wounds, unresolved issues with your mother that are projected onto your relationship with older women. Distorted identity, you know, just not really knowing who you are in Christ. Boy, if I could pick one that sort of is the essence of it all, that would certainly keep us from relating well. Sexual abuse uh, has a, a tremendous and profound capacity to damage our ability to form intimate relationships. Emotional abuse, uh, religious abuse. Chattering monkeys, and and by that I just mean all those voices in our heads that are yakking away when we're trying to form an intimate connection that uh, usually are not the Holy Spirit's voices. Underdeveloped faith. You know, to, to have the faith to move into a relationship with another human being, especially for a long time, takes a lot of faith. That's a very risky thing, and if our faith is undeveloped, we won't be able to, uh, to do that. Lack of vision. Uh, if we don't have a vision for what the relationship could become, what the other person could become, it's hard to move into a relationship like that. Then, of course, early childhood developmental issues. You know, that's a whole discipline of psychology. Lack of bonding with the parents, trauma in the early days. That can keep us from relating well. Self-centeredness. If my life is is narcissistic, if it's about myself, uh, that just doesn't work very well uh, with relationships. The need to control. If uh, I have to control my world and make sure I don't get hurt, uh, good luck with that. Um, past betrayal and broken covenants. If you've gone through something where you've been abandoned or betrayed or a covenant broke and you were a part of it and you experienced that, that can keep us from relating well. Lack of forgiveness and bitterness. Um, demonic affliction, of course, is an is aspect of, of this as well. Mental illness is an aspect of this as well. Uh, relational PTSD, when you've uh, had a, a really traumatic relational experience, it's easy to, to carry that into the rest of them. And uh, social media um, is obviously uh, doing terrible things to our capacity to form long-term intimate friendships. So uh, that was kind of what we talked about last week. Um, And one of the things that strikes me before we look at David and Jonathan's covenant relationship, and I've been thinking a lot about this and not exactly sure where to go with it, so I thought I'd just just throw it out. I think all of us want to relate well. Last week I mentioned that uh, that YouTube talk from the Harvard professor about the 75-year study of men, and uh, at the end of it they conclude the key to a a successful life is surprise, good relationships, you know, who to thunk it. Oh, I, I doubt many people just said, well, I don't want that. I mean, don't we all want that? As Christians, we're made in the image of a relational God, kind of hardwired for that. Everybody I know wants that. Then why is it so hard? Why do we need to do what Linda was talking about? I mean, it ought to be obvious, right? Well, in my experience, it's hard because of all that junk <laughs> that's going on 
uh, underneath the hood. And so one of the things that's so challenging, I think, as human beings and as a church and as a pastor, and I thought about this, if you don't resolve some of those internal conflicts, if, if there's not healing that goes on, and by the way, we all have this enormous capacity to push it way, way down <laughs> so that we can cope with life. But if you don't resolve, if you don't experience some healing with some of those things, you just simply can't move into deep relating. So I'm going to give you just an incredible sermon here in a moment. It's not going to take long uh, about how David and Jonathan uh, have covenant relationship. But if, if you've got a big tear in your soul, I mean, you can listen to the podcast all week and it's not going to, not going to do much. So one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is how do we as a community just develop more of a culture of healing so that our love for one another and our love for the city flows out of wholeness. And that's why we do things like collaborative communication and healing ministries and and things like that. And some of you have asked, um, Doug, or wondered, why are you opening up the service a little bit more at the end so that we can pray for each other? Uh, What are you doing with that? Um, What I'm trying to do with that is to add another layer in which the power of the Holy Spirit can be applied, the healing power of the Holy Spirit can be applied to our lives that are hopefully opened up by the word in the worship as we prepare to go to the table. That's what I'm trying to, to do with that. Now, I love the quote that we read tonight about the slow, hidden work of the kingdom. And in in my understanding, that's how almost all spiritual growth happens. It's real slow, it's real hidden, it's real underground. That's kind of the words God's given me for our church lately is slow, that we're a slow church. And that, you know, when people are coming into me and talking to me, I'm finding I can't even start in an hour. And so I'm saying, could we like talk all summer? get some interesting looks when you say that. (laughs) But I'm just finding it's all about slowness. But, you know, there's something else. My daughter and I and and Trevetta are reading a book on healing together this summer. Uh, My daughter, Sajin, is is, uh, working in Cincinnati with a kind of a a, a healing ministry and a dance and arts ministry. And so Dad thought maybe it would be helpful for her to have a little theology of healing before she got into it. Um, And we're doing that. And I was reading the chapter for this week, and we were writing our little paper for each other, and she says, the chapter pointed out how much of Christ's ministry was about healing. And I think that's significant because I tend to think of how much he teaches and how much he models and how much he disciples in the cross, and of course that's a huge part of it. But healing is all over it. And if we're open to the idea that Jesus is a model for us, I mean, I've heard that sort of the thing. You know, that, that's kind of what Christianity is all about, is that we're kind of like, like him, trying to be like him. Then that means that even though sanctification is slow, hard, hidden work, Jesus models the reality that sometimes the kingdom of God explodes into our slow world and does really great stuff, like bam! And it seems to me that the temptation is we want to go to a church that's real slow. And so we're kind of on a 30-year growth plan and don't mess with it. Or we want to go to a church that's real fast and we want everybody healed by, you know, 645. And what I'm suggesting is maybe it's kind of a both. Maybe we're a slow church with occasional fireworks. 
You know, something like that. And so why am I going into all this? Oh, there's a reason. There's a reason. Um, I am praying. I'm actually praying Acts 4.30, which is where the early church prays for Christ to heal and give signs and wonders for the glory of his name. And I think that can go slow and it can go fast. But I'm, I'm desperately hoping that some of these wounds, soul tears that I mentioned, uh, can be healed in our community so that we can be the kind of people that we want to be. All right. David and Jonathan's friendship is immediately put to the test. You know, it's, they're young guys here. It's, it's easy to get emotional after the state championship. And I, just, I love you, man, and we're going to be together for life. And yeah, and give me your yearbook. And hey, best friends forever, man. And then, you know, a year later, it's, uh, what, what happened to Frank? You know, Frank's dead. Oh, really? <laughs> no, we, it, it's, we don't do the greatest job of keeping up with uh, our friends. So same thing happens to David and Jonathan. Saul descends into jealousy, says he's going to kill David, and Jonathan defends his character. Chapter 19, verse 4. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said, Let not the king sin against the servant David, because he's not sinned against you, and his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. One of the things a soul friend does, one of the things a covenant friend does, is that when your character is being questioned by other people, a covenant friend defends you. They might listen, they might acknowledge some of the criticisms that are being made of you, but at some point they will step in and they will say, okay, fair enough, but I happen to know Bob maybe better than any of you, and I know his character, and the motives that you are assuming about him are not his motives. That's one of the things a covenant friend does. They have your back. For a brief moment, that works. Then Saul is filled with jealousy again, throws a spear at David. David escapes, goes to live with the prophet Samuel. Saul pursues him there. He leaves Samuel. He arranges a clandestine meeting with Jonathan. He says to Jonathan, what is my guilt that your father seeks my life? And Jonathan said, this isn't so. Jonathan's still in denial about this whole thing. David says, look, your father knows well that I found favor in your eyes. As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there's but a step between me and death. And Jonathan says, whatever you say, I'll do for you. And then in chapter 20, they develop this, this plan, an elaborate plan involving a little boy and arrows and a target. And, and essentially what happens at the end of the story is Saul goes berserk, comes after David, and Jonathan protects him at great cost to himself, and David escapes. One of the things a covenant friend does is protect you. Now, you know, we don't have king's armies chasing us through a forest. That's not the kind of protection most of us need. But we all need friends that know us well enough to ask us very hard questions when we're getting in trouble that might save our life. That's what a covenant friend does. He asks 
hey, you've got eight email addresses. Nobody needs eight email addresses. Why do you have eight email addresses? You know, every time we've been out lately, you've had three beers. It seems like you can't get through a week without a beer. Can we talk about that? You know, you just seem to be pulling away lately. You, you don't return my calls. There's a real darkness to your humor lately. There's an edge to it. You okay? You close your laptop very quickly every time I walk by. Why? You know, you've been complaining about your job for years. Could we talk about a change? Hey, I noticed when you told that story last night that you said you had a master's degree, but didn't you tell me once that you never finished it? Those are the kind of places covenant friends go with each other, and they protect us from making bigger mistakes down the road. Many many years ago, um, a, a pastor that I knew um, blew up his life, blew up a part of a church by having an affair. And a lot of us knew him at the time, and he was older than us, and we really respected him. And there were clues that something was off. And we would go to each other, you, you don't think, he, he not, no, he'd never, no, he'd never do that. And so none of us ever ask him a hard question. And then when it came out, and he lost his ministry and almost destroyed a family and destroyed his family, we'd wish that we hadn't. That's something that a covenant friend would do. Well, David is, is on the run again. He goes into the Philistine territory. He fakes insanity. He goes up to hill country near his home. He lives in a cave. He raises an army. He flees to another village. Saul chases him there. And he winds up in the wilderness of Ziph. And as soon as he gets there, the people in Ziph turn him in to Saul because Saul has uh, an intelligence network all over Judah. And now they're going after him. Jonathan is in a fight with his dad. His father has publicly shamed him before the court. Saul has yelled at him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you've chosen the son of Jesse? He can't even say the name David. You've chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan says, why? What has he done? Saul throws a spear at him to strike him. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger. Obviously, the house of Saul is coming apart. And Jonathan hears that his friend is in the wilderness of Ziph, which is one of the most uh, remote areas in, in all of Israel, still is today. I had the opportunity to go there. Very, very remote, very, very dangerous. He wrote several psalms there. And then we read this, this little paragraph. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. 
And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David remained at Horus, and Jonathan went home. One of the things a covenant friend will do is that when you get in trouble, he will come after you. He will get on a boat. He will get on a plane. He will get on a camel. He will do whatever he has to do to hunt you down and make sure you're okay. And he'll strengthen you in God. He won't just come to slap you on the back. He'll come bearing the promises and power of God. He'll want to point you to God. That's what a covenant friend does. And it's interesting that at the end, what do they do? They they re-up. They both bring up the covenant again. And essentially they're asking, now they're older men now. We don't know how old, but they've gone some miles. They're essentially both asking, are we still in this for life? Are, Are you, Jonathan, are you with me for life? Jonathan, Dave... You know, in a few years here, you're going to be the king and my house is going to be dead. Are you still in this with me? I think that's kind of an interesting relational dynamic. And I wonder if maybe there's a relationship in your life where you need to have that conversation. And I don't want to drown us in a sea of legalism here. You can't have many of these relationships. You can't move from Memphis to, to Madrid and, and, and keep everybody you know, on a stringer. There's nothing wrong about Christmas card relationships. There's seasons for everything. I get that. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. But is there someone in your life who you've left in the wilderness of Ziff that you need to pick back up with? And you, know, you know the kind of person I'm talking about. There was a soul tie there. Do you need to call them? Do you need to go see them? Do you, even if it's been 15 years and say, look, I named my son after you. Are we going to go the rest of our life with Christmas cards? Sometimes you ask those kind of questions. Well, in this case, the two men restate their love and their covenant for each other. They never see each other again. Jonathan dies on the battlefield. A messenger from Saul's camp brings the news to David. David laments. Last week I ended with two questions. This week I'll end with two questions. The first question is this. Is there a person in your life whose funeral you should speak at, but based on the current trajectory of your relationship, you won't? And the second question, what should you do about that? 
Let's pray.